Good morning, everybody. I'm grateful to be here and to give Shannon an opportunity to rest. I see him over there with his notepad out, getting ready to light me up with some red ink, I think. I'm excited to continue to be in the book of Romans as we've been in that series. Uh, There are a number of people who are of the opinion that Romans is the most important book or letter in all of Scripture. I feel like I need to start by confessing that I am one of those people. Please don't get your hopes up or confuse that with a guarantee that this message is actually going to be that great. We know that Martin Luther's study of Romans sparked the Protestant Reformation, which changed the course of Christianity. There are a number of commentators who refer to Romans as the gospel within the gospel. In his preface to the book of Romans, Luther called it the most important part of the New Testament and the very purest gospel. It can never be read or meditated on too much or too well, And the more it is handled, the more delightful it becomes, and the better it tastes. Shannon started our series in Romans a few weeks back when he kicked us off in chapter 12 as he talked about offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And then he moved on to verses 3 through 8, following up that first message to talk about the many functions or gifts the members of the church body have as they support the one mission of the church. That mission being to connect people to God or disciple-making. Last week, we talked about our hope that one day Redeemer could be an honest community of sinners and a hopeful community of saints, in addition to how we could be advocates for our adversaries, which is one way that we demonstrate biblical love to those outside of the faith. If you missed any of those previous messages, I would encourage you to go listen to them on SoundCloud. In Romans chapter 12, we see Paul in verses 9 through 21 provide a list of principles for living the Christian life. Some of you may see in your Bibles, this section is titled Marks of the True Christian. I don't think there's anyone who's a Christian who can read verses 9 through 21 without recognizing how God has made some of these things possible for us in our lives, in addition to convicting us in areas in which we need to be more obedient. Shannon covered verses uh, 14 through 21 last week. This morning, we're going to be looking at verse 9 and verse 10. Our goal today is to answer the question, what's love got to do with it? The key theme of Romans is the righteousness of God, that people are made right with God or justified apart from human effort um, and without any of their own works. The first 11 chapters present the deep theological truths of the doctrine of justification, while chapters 12 through 16 address the practical application of it. Please open your Bible or your Bible apps to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. And let's dig in to the how-to guide on God-like love. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Today we get to talk about love. Is there a more heartwarming or romantic subject? Is there a more overused, misunderstood, or misused word? Probably not. A few weeks ago, Shannon asked us two very important questions. Why are we here? And what's the mission of the church? We're here to be connected to God and to connect people to God, to make disciples. That's the one mission of the church. We refer to it as the Great Commission, and it's outlined for us in Matthew 28, 19, and 20. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, 
teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Teaching them to observe all that he has commanded us. Teaching them, those outside the church, to observe all that he has commanded us. The Christ follower, or those of us inside the church. What has he commanded us? Moses gave us 613 commands. It's a lot. David took it down to 15. Isaiah 2, 11. Micah to 3. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly. And finally, Jesus to 2. From Matthew chapter 22. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. It all depends on love. The greatest New Testament virtue, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What makes love greater than faith and hope? It's the only one of the three that's eternal. Our hope is going to be revealed to us when we reach heaven, and we won't need faith in heaven when we see Jesus and experience all that he has to offer. Shannon spoke two weeks ago about gifts and how everyone in the church has a gift. And while everyone in the church does have a gift, everyone is not gifted the same. But we all have the ability to love. When we think about love, I think we often equate that naturally to our hearts and emotion. All we have to do is follow our hearts into heaven and call it a day. Actually, if we follow our hearts, things are not going to end well. Jeremiah tells us that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? While the Bible describes love as a feeling, it is not a feeling that inspires an action. But love is first an action based on obedience to God that results in a feeling. I'm going to say that one one more time. When I told Jessica about it at home, we had to go through it a little bit. While the Bible describes love as a feeling, it is not a feeling that inspires an action. But love is first an action based on obedience to God that results in a feeling. I'm going to try to break it down a little bit. Key word being try. If love is an action that inspires a feeling, what happens when the feeling isn't there? What if we feel annoyed or angry? And it doesn't even have to be that type of emotion. That flies all over me. <laughs> Man, it's because I, I smell good. That's what it is. No, I'm kidding. If love, is, if, love, uh, if love is a feeling that inspires an action, what happens when the feeling isn't there? What if you feel angry or annoyed? It doesn't even have to be that kind of feeling. What if you just feel indifferent or you don't have a specific emotion that you're feeling at the moment? Not that I've ever felt that way toward my brother, one of my Christian brothers or my brother brother, but if I did, would that mean that I've stopped loving him? Well, of course not. This leads us to making the mistake of equating love with a natural emotion or desire. Love is not a natural emotion or desire. It isn't natural to go the extra mile. It isn't natural to turn the other cheek. It isn't natural to bear one another's burdens. It isn't natural to bless those who persecute you. And it definitely isn't natural to love your enemies. Only the obedience to God allows us to love those things. We might be able to do some of them. And you might even be relatively good at it. The Pharisees were really good doers. But we know because Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 13 that if we do things without love, it means nothing. 
Love doesn't come from our hearts, but rather through our hearts because of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Biblical love is supernatural. It's an abstract virtue that's expressed through concrete action. That means that if I asked each of you this morning to pick up your comment or connection card, don't worry, we're gonna ask, I think Ryan's going to try to ask for your information later, but if, if we asked you to pick up your comment or connection card and asked you to write your definition of love on it, some of you would have a hard time defining it. And many of you would define it differently. While we may struggle to define it with words, love is easy to recognize because we know it when we see it. The ultimate expression of love is the way in which we have seen God love us through his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8 tells us that God showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Thankfully, God didn't love us because we were good enough or the right group of people, or because we have similar interests. God's love for us didn't stay in the abstract, but expressed itself through concrete action, as Jesus Christ suffered the penalty that we as rebellious sinners deserved, so that he might offer pardon to all who trust in him. Our love for one another should follow the lead of God's love for us. Our love for one another, if it's to reflect God's love for us, can't stay in the abstract, but has to be expressed through concrete action. Scripture tells us in 1 John 3.18 to let us not love with word or tongue, but with actions and in truth. John says that the full expression of our love for one another is not found merely in the words that proceed from our mouths, but from the actions that proceed from our hearts. Our love is not merely expressed by what we say, but by what we do. Our expression of love for one another should exceed what we say to each other, and it should be evident in everything that we do. Love in action is the key to our relationships and it's the key to disciple making. The Apostle Paul prayed these words in Ephesians 3, 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So we make disciples and are known as disciples by the way we love. What does this look like as we circle back to the text in Romans chapter 12? Verse 9 starts with a personal responsibility to let our love be genuine. Genuine love is love without hypocrisy. If you're reading out of the NASB, that's actually what it'll say instead of let, uh, let your love be genuine. Hypocritical love is a love that says but doesn't show. It communicates one thing but does the opposite or does nothing at all. Genuine love is more than just doing what you say. It's the pure, sincere way in which you do it. How can we love genuinely without hypocrisy? Apart from God, we can't. Our hearts are deceitful and desperately sick. Jeremiah asks, who can understand our hearts? And he follows that up with an answer. There's only one. The Lord. The Lord is the only one who understands and has the ability to transform our hearts and renew our minds. He's the only one. A genuine love can't be experienced or expressed without the transformative power of the gospel. 
until we've been justified or made right with God, we can't love genuinely. To love like Jesus, we need to understand a simple truth. That to love like him, we have to surrender to him. We have to surrender to his authority and the truth of his word. The first step in loving God with all of your heart, soul, and mind is surrender. Our affections will never change until we take that first step. Our love for one another, if it's to be without hypocrisy, and if we're to love our neighbor as ourself, has to start with loving God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. It has to. All of our best efforts will fail as long as we live in rebellion against God. Moving on to the second half of verse 9, we're to abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. Biblical love is not blind. If it were blind, it would lead us to believe that there's no difference between good and evil, essentially meaning that neither of them exist. Some of you might be familiar or be aware of a gentleman named Richard Dawkins. He's one of the leading atheists, if not the leading atheist of our generation. And this is what he has to say about evil in his book, River Out of Eden, A Darwinian View of Life. In a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Ravi Zacharias is a Christian apologist who disagrees with Mr. Dawkins' view on evil. And I like the way that he frames up the subject of evil in this quote. When we look at God's law and say, I want it my way, not yours, that's what evil is all about. You will never come to him until you have come to yourself and seen how despicable and how weak your heart is. If there is such a thing as good and evil, there has to be a moral framework that defines it. Do you trust yourself to define it? I used to. I gave that a good run for 28 years. Didn't go well. How about the government? Do we want to, do we want to let the government define what our moral framework is? I certainly don't. Our current culture's view that something can be morally true or good for you, but not for me, is simply false. There really is such a thing as good and evil. And when we realize that truth and we peel it back, it actually leads us to God rather than away from him, which is exactly the reason why a guy like Mr. Dawkins wants to try to take the subject of evil off the table. I want to be careful in what I'm communicating this morning. I'm not saying that somebody who isn't a Christian can't love or be good. The question isn't whether or not a non-Christian can love or be good, but by whose authority and definition are they being loving or good? That's a question for all of us this morning, church. Who defines what's good and evil for you? Does it ebb and flow with the way culture defines it? Today at least? Do your friends define it, students? Even your church friends? How about Hollywood? Do we let Hollywood define what's good and evil for us? Only the God and creator of the universe can define what's good and evil. 
Scripture's pretty clear about what God hates and considers evil. Pride, arrogance, I don't know anything about those two. Perverse speech, or that one. Sexual immorality, I'm not off to a good start. Theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, envy, slander, and a false witness are just a few. When we listen to music, look at the internet, or, we, or watch TV, we see a culture that's entertained by those things, or in some cases, celebrates them. A Christian should hate evil because of what it is and because God hates it, not because of the potential consequences of practicing it. I remember taking a trip when I was a kid. My dad, Ryan, and I, along with our uncle and cousin, had an opportunity to go to Colorado for a few weeks um, to stay in a cabin on the side of this mountain in the middle of nowhere. It was really incredible. It belonged to a friend of our grandfather's who had won it in a card game. I get that's the type of people my family rolled with, I guess. It's a true story. We drove, and I remember on the drive there, I had Ryan convinced that he'd contracted a deadly disease because he'd used a restroom at a really sketchy-looking gas station. It was a terrible thing to do. He cried for hours. That was also the first time that I jumped from a moving vehicle at 60 miles an hour. 60 miles an hour is a little bit of a stretch. It was actually more like 20 or 25 miles an hour. Ryan's saying 10. That's not true. It was at least 20 miles an hour. But it felt like 60 when I hit the ground. I, did, I didn't quite have my tuck and roll down, down yet. <laughs> I remember uh, the long drive home and my dad taking us back to our mom's house and walking back through the door for the first time. And it hit me. The smell. My mom's been a smoker th- since she was like seven. Um. You know, for some of you that know me really well may know that that's the reason why I feel the way that I do about some of those things. But the smell of smoke saturated everything. Furniture, clothing, food, nothing could escape it. Nothing. I I just thought that was how things were supposed to smell. I didn't know any better. There was only one way to clean all of that out. And that was for me to spend time away from it in the cool, clean, crisp air of the Rocky Mountains. We have to turn to the Word of God to know what's good and to cleanse us. As we come away from the world, we have to saturate ourselves with the Word of God. It's the only way that we can renew our minds, and it's the only way that we can know what the good, acceptable, and perfect will of God is. You can't love God and love the world. Biblical love distinguishes between good and evil and acts accordingly, holding fast to what's good and avoiding what's evil. In verse 10, we see a transition from personal responsibilities to church family responsibilities to love one another with brotherly affection and to outdo one another in showing honor. What does loving one another with a brotherly or family affection look like? I think we see a great picture of this type of love and action in Acts chapter 2. We see people together not based on personal attraction or desirability, but united in the same principles and interests, all centered on Christ. We see them breaking bread and selling things to give to those in need. Imagine being in a position to observe those things happening. You would never ask if those people loved each other. 
You might ask why or how they're able to love each other that way. And the answer you would get would point you right back to the cross. For those of us that are plugged in here, or for people that want to look hard enough, we see some of those same things happening at Redeemer Church. We see people showing up to help after somebody's had surgery or to simply be available with a shoulder to cry on at a funeral. We've seen people downsize to put themselves in a position to give more. We've seen life groups rally around people to make sure that the financial needs are being met. We walk into our kitchens or our living room and we see people seated at the table with our sons and daughters doing things like math tutoring and investing in them to ask them how their week was. The most beautiful thing about all of it is that it may not have been who we would have picked or how we would have planned for it all to happen. And that's what makes it as great as it is. I have to admit, when I was going through this text, I got excited when I got to the words, outdo one another. Finally, competition. I've been waiting for God to line us all up and give us a chance on our own merit and effort to grind each other out, declare victory. If you don't medal or podium, sorry, you don't get into heaven. <laughs> to outdo one another in showing honor, we have to look at Christ's example of humility, which Paul describes for us in Philippians chapter 2. We're to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than ourselves. Let each of us look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Many of you know that my mother-in-law, Kay, passed away a month ago on September 2nd after a long battle with cancer. We celebrate the time that we had with her and that she's now in heaven, pain-free, but there is sorrow because we miss her. We miss her being available here on earth. We've gone through the grieving process of knowing that her time was limited to Jessica and her family literally sitting in her bed with her while she took her last breaths, to planning and participating in her funeral and burial. While we continue to grieve, we've moved on to discussions about her things. I don't know about your families. I'm sure this doesn't happen in your family. But in mine, on my side, when someone passes, there's a short grieving window and then there's a tendency to get really wrapped up and focused on the stuff. I remember Jessica's oldest sister, Kim, who's the executor of the estate, texting her to let her know what day we needed to be at K's so that all the sisters could go through the jewelry. And being aware of my family's experiences... I feared the worst. I thought, this is where they go from holding hands together and singing Amazing Grace to hearing a Braveheart-like call to charge. <laughs> we got to Kay's house and they started to set all the jewelry out in a little circle and it was time. It was time for people to start claiming what was theirs. Except nobody did. And it became clear very quickly that nobody was going to. See, Jessica and her sisters 
We're much more concerned with hurting one another by picking or claiming something that somebody else might really want or be more attached to, that they weren't going to claim anything. Outdoing one another and showing honor is not a competition that focuses on us and the things that we can do or can get so that we can be the winner. Outdoing one another in honor is an organic response to God's call to value others more than ourselves. Before we close, I want to try to give us all a few things that we can focus on that'll help us love genuinely, hate evil, love with brotherly affection, and show one another honor. The first thing we need to do is focus on who love is. We need to focus on who love is. God is love. Please don't confuse that with love being God. Our culture will tell us that we can have sex outside of marriage or we can have sex inside of marriage with someone other than our spouse or with someone of the same sex as long as we're in love. We make love God when we make it the supreme judge and justification of all things. That isn't biblical. We live in a world that tells us to put ourselves at the center. That in order for us to be of value to anyone or anything, we have to love ourselves first. Self-love is not love. It's selfishness, which is evil and the opposite of love. We're called to deny ourselves, to take up our crosses daily and follow him, to love God first. If you want to be a good husband and love your wife well, don't focus on yourself first and don't focus on her. Focus on him. If you want to be a good father or good parents to your kids or a good friend, don't focus on them. You have to focus on him. If you want to love somebody who might not be the most lovable, if you focus on yourself or you focus on them, you have no shot. You have to focus on him. The second thing we need to do is pray. Without communication, relationships fall apart. Prayer is how we communicate with God. We aren't always going to love people as genuinely as we should. We won't always hold fast to what's good as often as we'd like. And there will be times that we do a really poor job of showing one another honor. We need to pray to ask for the encouragement and guidance and strength to do those things well. And when we don't, not if we don't, but when we don't, we need to pray to repent and ask for forgiveness. Being made right or justified with God doesn't instantly lead us to perfection. We still have to go through the process of sanctification, which is the gradual ongoing process of battling sin and becoming more like Jesus. Prayer is one of the ways that we connect to and surrender to God. We need to pray for others. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters who need it. And even for those who think they don't. Nothing proves you love someone more than praying for them. Even if they never know it. Finally, we have to give. 
We have to be willing to give away our most precious asset. Some of you tightened up when I said giving it first. We're not, we're not going down the money route today, right? Money's not our most precious asset. You guys were like, man, how do you tie that into the love thing? That was crazy. One thing we all have in common is the number of hours in each day. We all get 24. Time is unique in that it can't be accumulated like money. We're forced to spend it at a rate of 60 minutes every hour, whether we choose to or not. We have to be accessible and willing to use our time to step into somebody's life or to invite people into ours. And that isn't something that just happens once or at the most convenient times. Love doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. You can't love someone without being present and without being available. You don't love somebody, students, by liking a social media post. Social media is a decent way, I guess, to communicate. But it's not a very good way for people to connect. In fact, I think it gives people a false sense of connection. Taking that phone call, making time to spend with somebody in the hospital or a living room or a coffee shop, You have to give your time. You can't love without being present. When people walk through the doors of Redeemer Church or they come to an event that we're involved with or they observe some of us in a social or private setting, we want them to view us as one thing. We want them to recognize us as one thing. Disciples of Jesus. And there's only one way that they can do that. By the way that they see us love. Is it genuine? Does it hate evil and cling to what's good? Do we love one another with a brotherly affection? And do we show one another honor? So what's love got to do with it as we push to plant a gospel-centered church in Rockwall County? everything. Let's pray together. Father, we are so grateful for the love, grace, and mercy you've shown us, even though we don't deserve it. Open our eyes to the things in our lives that are evil, to the selfish pride and sinful prejudice, and grant us forgiveness for those things. May the love that we have for one another always be rooted and grounded in Christ and may it be characterized by love in action and in truth. Give us the courage to boldly and humbly respond to the mission of the church. I pray, I pray that your love would continue to shape us and allow us to influence our communities not to bring glory and attention to us, but to bring glory and attention to you. Amen.